Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. With Western society becoming morally polyglot and secular, religious freedom is becoming a major political clash point, and in the United States, a central front in what is sometimes called the culture war. Proponents of robust protections see the free exercise of religion guaranteed in the Constitution as the first liberty. But others view the same issue as being an excuse to justify discrimination against the LGBT community and to thwart the free exercise of unfettered reproductive freedom. This controversy is so important to both our rights and duties as human beings that I invited Sam Brownback, one of the world's most engaged defenders of religious freedom, back on Humanize to discuss the current scene. In the premiere episode of this podcast, Brownback and I discussed religious freedom internationally. In this episode, we will mostly look into the domestic controversies. Sam Brownback served as Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom from February 2018 until January 2021. He also served as Governor of Kansas from 2011 to 2018. Prior to that, he represented Kansas in the United States Senate and in the House of Representatives. While a member of the Senate, he worked actively on religious freedom issues in multiple countries and was a key sponsor of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. He is also a founder and chairman of the newly formed National Committee for Religious Freedom. Sam, welcome back to Humanize. Thanks, Wesley, and thanks for uh, having me be a repeat guest on your show. First one. My first repeat. (laughs) That's great. I'm uh, delighted to join you, and always good to talk to you, Wes. You always have such great ideas and insights, so it's a pleasure always to visit. Well, thanks. You know, in our last interview, you told me that you see religious liberty as, quote, essential to human dignity. That's a very powerful statement that would appear to put faith at the core of human flourishing. Do you believe that? No, I do. You know, I had an experience since then. I was in London meeting with some Ahmadi Muslims, and there was an older gentleman that was there, and the Ahmadis get persecuted all over the world. Uh, And he said, you know, religious freedom is so deep within the person. uh, It just touches the soul, and as such, it touches all of the other rights and what the person is. And I thought, you know, that really makes religious freedom the human right of the soul, and the deepest of human rights, and 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 the one the one around which you know our our eternal character kind of is shaped and connects, and 
And I thought he really put it the clearest for me is that this is the deepest uh, of human rights. And that kind of uh, illustrates an important point that sometimes in our country, uh, this is viewed as a, quote, Christian issue. It's really not a Christian issue. It's an international issue having to do with human rights, regardless of faith or lack thereof. Absolutely. It touches, it touches every faith and it touches every person. You know, even if you don't practice a religion, you want to have freedom to be able to practice uh, whatever you seek to. And in some countries, people need freedom of religion to be able to be atheist, that they need to have that to not be persecuted and pushed upon by the dominant faith in that country, sometimes enforced by the government to force them to practice the faith of the of the majority in that nation, we saw that have taken. We've seen that taking place in Nigeria. So, no, this is a this is a right for everybody, regardless of whether you practice faith. And it is a central right around which you can build really the other human rights. And on top of that, it's really the only institution and group, religion, that's big enough and has enough um, pull on people to stand up to a government. So if you want to stand up to a government, it's often the religious community that does that because they're the only ones big enough and strong enough often to stand up to a government. You certainly saw that in the uh, civil rights uh, movement here in the United States. Uh, You did. And you saw it in the fall of the Soviet Union in Poland when uh, Pope John Paul goes to Poland and says, be not afraid. There were people afraid there that day, but it wasn't the people. It was the government. Because they were shaking in their boots thinking, what if this country that's historically Catholic starts to mount up against us? We don't have enough troops to put them down. And they didn't. And they threw off the yoke of communism. Yeah, that helped crack uh, the whole Soviet Union empire, didn't it? It did. And now watch today. The big thing that the Chinese Communist Party is doing is putting down religion and holding religion down. That's the entity that they fear. That's the one that's big enough with enough loyalty to it to take them down. And that's why they're committing genocide on the Uyghurs. They're organ harvesting Falun Gong. They're also now attacking Christians. It's uh, it's quite remarkable. Well, and that It reflects they- a fear, I think. You're right, a fear. It is, and why they've so attacked the Tibetan Buddhist for so long. Right and have excluded the Dalai Lama, is that they're afraid of Tibetan Buddhists. I I think really the rest of the world should stand up and take notice of the importance for freedom that religion is. Yeah, and and that also gives a a lie to another kind of media narrative you often hear, that religious freedom is conservative, and uh, the opposing religious freedom is more liberal. Uh, Address that for a second. Yeah, it's just false. Uh, Religious freedom is about this deep human right. And on top of that, uh, Wes, what what we've seen around the world, and we did this survey, the countries that are the best on religious freedom are also the best on LGBT rights. And you wouldn't kind of think that initially, but you just think about it for a few minutes. Well, of course, because it goes to the dignity of the human being, the dignity to choose whatever it is that you choose that peacefully you will pursue that's your right. And you may not, people may not agree with what you choose, but you have that dignity and that right to do that. And that's why these two actually travel together in most countries. Yeah. You know, when we spoke last year, uh, we mostly, as I mentioned earlier, 
uh, focused on the international scene, and you had just basically come off your duties as as the ambassador uh, for that kind of international work. Since that time, I've noticed uh, quite clearly that you have turned a lot of attention to domestic religious freedom issues. What what made you make that pivot? Well, what I saw uh, quickly upon coming home and focused looking here was that um, the United States is the standard bearer on religious freedom globally. Uh, we are the country that cares the most about it. It was a critical part of our founding and allowing the 13 original colonies to come together that all had different kind of faith orientations and had just come from a continent where you persecuted and killed people of the opposite faith. That was their, that was their knowledge. That was uh, what traveled with them. Religious freedom allowed them to bring 13 disparate religious communities together into one country. So it's such a key part of us. But any ground we lose here gets magnified around the world. So it, it, people watch this and as it gets limited here. It gets limited other places around the world. And what I'm seeing here is we're under significant attack on religious freedom in the United States. We're under attack in the education system. We're under attack in the healthcare system. And you're seeing corporate America uh, jump into these attacks as well. So while the court is defending these rights, the culture and the practices taking place within the country are limiting these rights of religious freedom. Yeah, I, I, I kind of uh, think that's true, too. Um, is this what motivated you to start the National Committee for Religious Freedom? And, and tell us what about, uh, about that organization, what its purpose is, and, and some of the work it does. Uh, it is. Uh, and really what I, I saw was you were just at the edge of a society and a culture willing to limit this fundamental right to free exercise. Uh, and you're seeing it now in the polling data. You've got 40% of the American public willing to go with the majority uh, over uh, a religious minority's rights. And you're going, oh, whoa, 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 guys, we have never done this before. Even in my home state of Kansas, uh, sometime back, um, uh, the Amish that we're living here, uh, we have a rule that you have to go to school till the age of 18. Well, they've got a religious conviction that you don't go to school past the age of 16. Uh, and there was a big kind of uh, discussion and about that, but we found a way to accommodate. Say, okay, get a GED uh, and we'll let, uh, let you go ahead with this practice of just going to school to the age of 16. We've always in the past looked for ways to accommodate deeply held religious beliefs. But now we seem to be looking for a way to persecute and prosecute people with deeply held religious beliefs, almost as a, you know, a way of making a statement to the broader society that we're open-minded and we're not going to let these uh, old thoughts and ways and, and cultural ways of doing business and doing things uh, infringe upon any uh, individual rights in this country. So uh, it, I think we're in a dangerous territory, and we've really got to stand up and push back. That's why we formed the National Committee for Religious Freedom. We'll be forming up state chapters in all 50 states, uh, so that we'd get Georgians for religious freedom, Virginians for religious freedom, uh, to stand up and to fight in those states on state, local issues that impact religious freedom there. Yeah, it's, it, it, it impacts the concept of comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, the idea yeah. that we can, even though we have very different uh, worldviews, 
were able to live together. I mean, if you're going to try to force everybody to accept one particular approach to life, you're going to end up breaking instead of bending, if, if that makes sense. Yes. And then, you know, that's really been one of the secrets of America is we've got the most diverse country on the face of the earth. We bring in people from everywhere, cultures and ideas and religions from everywhere, but people want to carry that religion with them. It's a very deep part of them, but many of these religions have different ideas than the dominant culture. We've always found a way in the past, West, to accommodate that, and now it seems like we don't want to accommodate it. Uh, So I think we've just got to stand up for it. And it's increasingly becoming the case that if you want to practice a traditional set of moral values, uh, that you're being more and more uh, persecuted, uh, pushed, that you can't believe that marriage is a union of a man and a woman and that that's it, that it's a sacrament, that life is sacred, or that you were born a man or a woman. Um, These are increasingly becoming attacked in the public square and um, people that brings up that brings up an important point. Um, the free exercise of religion is how it's worded in the Constitution, and sometimes we hear our political leaders reduce that to freedom of worship. Um, and those are two different things. I mean, freedom of worship is the right of, let's say, the Catholic Church to say uh, that the communion is the real body and blood of Christ. And let's say the Baptist church to say, no, it isn't the real body and blood of Christ. It's more symbolic. That's like a freedom of worship issue or for Jewish people not to believe in Christ and this kind of thing. But free exercise has as much more to do with how one lives one's life in terms of living out their faith. Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, look at the recent Supreme Court case of Joe Kennedy and the football coach that wanted to pray on the sideline after the game, not hurting anybody else, not asking anybody else to pray with him. But at the end of each game, because of his convictions to his faith, he really felt called to pray on the sideline and thank the good Lord for keeping his players safe or whatever it was he was saying. Uh, And that's free exercise. That's him living his faith in a public place. Uh, Now, he he wasn't forcing anybody else to do it, but that's free exercise. And the Supreme Court found that, yes, that is free exercise, and you have the right to do that. The minority opinion in that case um, worried that it was a form of coercion on students, that, that he would that they might fear that they would be punished in terms of the football uh, they're playing in the game and so forth if they didn't pray with the coach who was praying on his own. Uh, What did you think of that argument? Well, I I think that that's an argument that really, I, I don't think it's valid, A. B., you can't then let him have his free exercise uh, without then somebody else saying, okay, I feel some fear. And which of these do we go with? Your constitutional right of free exercise or this possibility of somebody uh, being fearful or concerned or worried? And I think in that situation, uh, you've got to go with free exercise. This is his constitutional right. And we do, we do these sort of balancing tests all the time in this diverse country. Um, you know, Wesley, I, there's uh, Hindus that don't believe in eating beef. Uh, you know, and there are other people in the country that raise beef. You know, are the people that raise beef uh, feel like they're going to be put upon that you can't 
consume uh, beef. And those are different ideas. And right. yet the, the, we, we uh, allow people to accommodate each other. And the, the Hindus should not be forced to eat beef, and the uh, rancher should not be prevented from raising cattle. <laughs> Isn't that an easy enough accommodation? <laughs> now, maybe it's too simple of an, of an example for people, but it really isn't in this diverse nation. And two, Wes, my goodness, have, have we gotten so... Um, I don't know, where we just can't take diversity or somebody else thinking a little different than us, that we can't accommodate somebody's different opinion if it's peacefully being practiced. Yeah, diversity is, the diversity is, some people define it as like skin color or uh, nationality, but you're saying that diversity is worldview, point of view, religion, non-religion, philosophy, etc. Yes, and aren't we all the richer for it? Am I not richer for the Amish being in this country or the Orthodox Jew or the Hindu or the Muslim, even though I'm a follower of Jesus? And I think, yes, I am richer for it. And I don't agree with them theologically. I don't agree with all of their practices. But I love that I'm in a country that can accommodate and allow them to practice their faith freely here. And I think we are all the richer for it. And like with the Sikhs, there have been accommodations for Sikhs so that they can wear their turbans, even though it violates uh, strict uniform standards, for example. Yes, or carry their ceremonial knife. And yeah. I'm delighted so, we so have we, Sikhs. we do in that. Country. I mean, in, in World War II, when we were really in an existential struggle for survival, religious pacifists were allowed not to be drafted. And, and not be punished for refusing to go in the army. That's how important religious freedom and, and free exercise of religion was in World War II. Yes, and there's that beautiful movie on Hacksaw Ridge where you've got a, um, a, a, a it, well, he wasn't really a pacifist. He just didn't believe in carrying a gun. But it turns out that he's one of the heroes uh, of that battle. Uh, you know, and that, that's the beauty of this diversity and us allowing it to come forth and not be hidden or required to be practiced only in private. The National Center has come up with eight guiding principles on religious freedom. We don't have time to talk about all of them, but just give me a general statement about the eight principles, and then I've got a couple I'll ask you about. Well, I, I think all of it really comes down to that you have this deeply held constitutional right to freely exercise your faith as long as you're peaceful about it. And that it all centers in on that. And that includes you have a right to um, be able to do those things in public or in private. You have a right to be able to practice um, a profession and still carry your constitutional rights of free exercise. You have a right to be a teacher you have a right to be a lawyer, a realtor, a pharmacist, and practice this. And let's work at finding this route to accommodate people. If you're a pharmacist, you don't believe in abortion, somebody asks for a, an abortifacient pill, that you hand this off to somebody else to fill the prescription so that you don't have to, but there's an accommodation that's made. That's really all that that we're asking. I've heard for. some uh, opponents of that approach say, well, what if uh, the Aztec religion came back, for example, and they wanted to, to practice human sacrifice? No right is absolute. Uh, 
And you're not saying that religious freedom is absolute, so that if there really is a compelling interest to prevent a behavior such as child sacrifice, of course, the law would accommodate that, right? Yes. I mean, I said peacefully practice your faith. When, right. you're, child, when you're sacrificing a child, you're not being peaceful about it. When, if your faith calls you to blow up a building, uh, you're not being peaceful about it. While I was governor of Kansas, we had two individuals that had radicalized in their faith, and we're going to blow up an airport and a building in Kansas. Well, we didn't let them do it. And they're in jail, and they should be in jail. That's a, that's a, that's a big difference. Yeah, the Jehovah's Witnesses um, religion doesn't believe in blood transfusions, yet um, that is when it comes to, ch- of course, when it comes to adults, that is permitted. But if it comes to children, the state has said, look, we have the right uh, under after proper due process of law, if it's required to save the child's life, to to give that child blood. This is the kind of give and take that this issue uh, accommodates, correct? It is, and it's what we've got to do uh, on this. And, and I hope, too, we can just find ways to start working with each other again. Uh, instead I, I know of, that's where your heart is, and you reach out and reach out and reach out. And it, it seems like you actually get greater success um, from people, as you mentioned, the, the Muslim uh, at the beginning of this interview, it seems like you get more success from people of other faith than you do uh, many secularists here in the United States. Uh, I, we seem to get there. Uh, in it, but I think it's because every people of other faith going, you know, we have some practices that we are, hold deeply as part of our religion that we could see people starting to attack those. And so it's right. we've got so, to really so, stand together. Yeah, we're all in it together. And the secularist might think, and I'm I'm using that in a very general sense, I'm, and it's not meant to be as a pejorative either. But the person without religion, uh, who doesn't, uh, might not feel like I the, I have any skin in this game because I don't have any religious beliefs that can be be infringed because I don't have any religious beliefs. But but that means you're not a civil libertarian. It seems to me. Well, and we've had in the past, we've had humanists and others uh, part of our religious freedom because, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, there are some countries in the world that force you to practice the dominant religion. And they're going, no, we don't want to do that. This is part of my religious freedom that I don't have to practice this faith. And And that gets us to number two of the eight guiding principles. Quote, religion is the universal human search for a greater than human source of being, reality, and ultimate meaning. To deny the right to engage in this search or to live in accord with the truth discovered is to deny the core of what it means to be human, close quote. And that also applies to non-religious search for truth, doesn't it? It does. And that's why really we should all agree upon this. This is foundational to what it is to be a human what it is to have free will, what it is to have choice, that we would all agree that we are entitled to have. That's why I, I, uh, I would hope, you know, as we go forward with these uh, discussions and this campaign, that people would say, you know, this is actually important to me, even though I'm not a person that practices faith. And this is important because number three of the eight guiding principles gets right into that point, quote, in America, Religious freedom encompasses the right to believe or not to believe in religious truths, close quote. So you have put in writing precisely what you've just been describing. Yeah. 
because it's just that's the way it is. I I would hope too that we could pe- get people to start to see that these actually tie together. We've we've you know we've so fragmented the culture here in the political sense. And we politicized everything now. I, I think it's time we stop we stop politicizing everything and start to look at some of these as ways for us to come together. Yeah, let's talk about we're going to get you're a lawyer, I'm a lawyer. We're going to get into a little bit of law here. Uh, so let's not try to be too arcane in our discussion, but how religious the free exercise of religion is protected in this country. Um, it's in the Constitution, but there's a case called Smith versus Unemployment Division where the Supreme Court ruled that if a law is of general application, it does not violate the free exercise clause, even if it impedes the free exercise rights of particular individuals. Uh, uh, without turning this again into a law symposium, uh, do you see a problem with the Smith decision? Well, what I've seen has been a problem with this idea of the first, we got 16 words, Congress shall make no law establishing a, a church, a, establishing a religion, nor limiting the free exercise thereof. What I've seen as the problem has been the court for 50 years until really the current court of a couple years ago, emphasizing this establishment clause and saying, okay, they would see establishment clause on everything and they wouldn't allow prayer. Uh, They wouldn't allow people to read a Bible in school because of establishment clause, but ignoring the free exercise clause. And that's to me where we really have got to start to get some balance pushed back is that people have a free exercise clause too. The establishment clause is there. It's important. We don't have a Church of America and shouldn't established by the government. But the founders thought, yeah, that's important, but it's also very important you be able to practice your faith freely and have the protection of the government to practice your faith as you see fit peacefully. Yeah, and there's uh, getting back to the establishment issue. Uh, there was a case in Maine last year, I believe, where Maine was saying that if uh, you know Maine gives private um, gives scholarships that parents can take and and give uh, the, as tuition to the school of their choice, but Maine excluded specifically schools that taught re- uh, the school's religion, and the Supreme Court said that's not constitutional. So it looks like the um, the establishment clause cases are moving more back toward from what I guess you and I would agree uh, is a more reasonable approach rather than a, a, a really extreme approach. That's what it seems like to me. You know, and you, you, you see these ebbs and flows in the Supreme Court in different situations over time, but I think this one's very important uh, to protect this free exercise right, particularly almost as you got fewer people practicing religion so that the religious uh, people are more in a minority position, their rights are going to have to be protected uh, against a majority that may say, look, we just don't agree with how you look at the world. And they'd say, I'm, I'm sorry you don't agree with that. I still have this constitutional right to express and to pr- practice this. And I think that's going to be increasingly important. Look at Yeshiva University and Uh, New York, here's a place that's practicing Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, the way it's been practiced for thousands of years and being told, 
uh, no, nope, you can't do that. And yeah, the state going, of New York, just for a little uh, summary on that case, has basically told this yeshiva university or yeshiva school, it's not a university, I believe, um, that they have to allow LGBT club, which goes against what the administrators say is the religious beliefs and dogma of the school. The case went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court refused to take it, not on the substance of the question, but because the school still had uh, state remedies that it could pursue. That's a a procedural issue. Um, But because the uh, injunction that was put in by uh, actually um, one of the liberal uh, justices before this decision to reject certiorari came down, um, that, that the school would have to permit it. It has actually closed down all clubs at the school in order not to uh, have to have a club that violates its religious beliefs. This turns these kinds of issues into all or nothing, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's a, a to me that's a bad outcome uh, on this. I mean, here you're you're saying okay. We just shut it all down. And, you know, as somebody that's run things, like ran a state, and, uh, you know, that's not an imprudent answer. And it's probably the answer his lawyers uh, gave to him. Said, okay, sure. <clears throat> the answer here, just shut it all down. <clears throat> but you have to shut it all down. Uh, that way you're, you can't be accused of discrimination, at least until they're going to shut it all down, until the state remedies are exhausted. And then if, if the state does not give them redress, I'm sure they'll go back to the Supreme Court. And as I read the decision, uh, the Supreme Court did specifically said it was free to take it if, if at that point, if it chose to. Yeah. And, you know, so, so that could become a really important free exercise case, um, in the future. But, um, as things stand now, you still have the law of general applicability standard at the Supreme Court level. And that's why a law was passed in Congress uh, and the Senate. In fact, you were a congressman. You voted for this law, as you said in our last show, um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act says, and it only applies to federal laws and regulations, but that if a person believes that their uh, free exercise is being inhibited, once they establish that, then the state has the obligation to prove that there is a compelling state interest in that restriction. Uh, we can use as an extreme example the Aztec and child sacrifice example we talked about earlier. And then it sh- the state also has to show that if there is indeed a compelling state action, a reason for doing this, that the method that they have chosen is the least restrictive possible. That's what a pro- what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act says, correct? Yes, yes, that's basically a good summation the, of it. The interesting thing about that rule, that law that has been passed, is that it passed overwhelmingly. It was nearly unanimous in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It was signed by Bill Clinton when he was president. And at that point, this would be in the early 90s, there was complete agreement that the free exercise needed to be protected. And then that kind of consensus, which was across the cultural divides, across the political divides, collapsed. What happened? Oh, boy. 
you know, I lived this period and, you know, to say one answer or another, I'm not sure I could, but it, it seemed to be what happened is the left decided they wanted to go to war on this issue. Uh, and that because of LGBT to, is what I understand. And it was, it was mostly the LGBT community, but it was also a, you know, a, a left that was saying they wanted to start emphasizing more things that were um, not religious and I were see. of interest to a secular community. And they identified this as being, uh, being one of them. And prior to that, uh, we hadn't thought about this at all. I had done a religious freedom bill in the Congress with Chuck Schumer when he was a young senator. Uh, to take care and allow Sikhs to be able to practice and carry their ceremonial lives in certain places. And it was seen as a kind of an American value that we all agreed upon. And then it became a political and politicized human right. And, and I think that's a tragedy and we're, we're worse off for it as a nation. And we fight more than we clearly need to about the topic. Yeah, and it's not like you 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 had to say, well, we want to pursue secular approaches to policy. Doesn't mean you can't still have the accommodation rights that were guaranteed in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which uh, um, the Democrats. Uh, this is not a partisan show or anything, but the Democrats in in the Congress have passed a couple of bills that would actually gut the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so that it did not apply to things like um, uh, being required to perform abortions or transition services for transgendered people and so forth. So, so there really has become a divide about religious freedom, uh, at least in that sense in the Congress. It has, and it's become that way in the culture uh, too, unfortunately. And I, I, I just... I, I think the way out of it is the way we've handled these things in the past, uh, which really is to start to talk with each other and understand each other and see that, you know, that, that these are deeply held views and there are ways for us to work through this. Like the cake baker case uh, that was so famous, um, you know, the lady says, look, I'll bake a cake for the LGBT clients that I have. I'll bake them all day long. Uh, but I won't do a wedding cake, but to me, because to me, this is a sacrament, and this is sacred, and it's an institution between a man and a woman ordained by God. And here's, a, here's five bakers in this town that will do this. Uh, why can't we just look at things that way uh, and, and see that these are legitimate, deeply held views, and we can, as a country, stay together if we'll take care of each other's deeply held opinions. The people who are on the other side of that issue would claim and have claimed that um, because it's a public accommodation, you know, a public business, that allowing uh, the baker, the cake baker to refuse, uh, the Colorado cake baker to um, refuse to uh, create that wedding cake for the same-sex couple amounts to discrimination. Uh, you see that same argument made with regard to allowing uh, a Christian, let's say a Catholic uh, doctor, not to engage in uh, uh, prescribing contraceptives. Uh, so, so how do you how do you address the question of discrimination? That uh, because a person is engaged in the in the public square in business, um, that the argument is that civil rights laws compel that person to um to part to a lot to 
provide that service. Otherwise, you are engaged in uh, the breach of civil rights. Yeah, and these are these are really good questions and difficult ones, and that's why they make it their way up to the court and often to the Supreme Court. But I think at the end of the day, Wesley, you've got to look at a person's constitutional rights. The Constitution trumps uh, all other laws. The Constitution uh, uh, trumps civil rights laws, is what you're trumps saying. Trumps civil rights laws on top of it, and you've got this constitutional right. And here's another piece of it. We don't all agree in this country on everything. Uh, we, we don't. My wife and I don't agree on everything. Uh, but that doesn't you know, mean that you know, one of us is right and the other one's wrong. It's just you look at it and say, okay, how do we figure this out? But you've got this constitutional right. These were specifically put in the Bill of Rights by the founders to protect this right that was seen as inherent to the needs for us to be able to have a diverse nation the way we started and the way we are today. And that's why these constitutional rights are, I think, have to be looked at as these are central ones you have to protect. They, you, you have to protect these. Not to say that there isn't a legitimate claim that, you know, okay, now wait a minute, you're, you, you said you would build a, you'd make a wedding cake and you'll do it for this couple, but you won't for that couple. What's, what's going on here? Uh, and that that's not a legitimate issue to raise, but you have a person's deeply held convictions that are a constitutional right and that, that are superior. So the, the issue is, you, what I heard you say, and, and I hope I'm not putting words in your, in your mouth, that you have actually two legitimate claims being that are, that are different, that disagree with each other, but they're both legitimate, being pressed at the same time. One is the right to, to, to uh, obtain services in the public square as a public accommodation. The other is the right to free exercise of religion. And what you seem to be saying is that you can have, and, and, and this is the paradox of freedom, you can have two legitimate claims, but once in a while, one has to predominate over the other. And what you're saying is that the constitutional claim of free exercise, when there's a conflict, has to uh, predominate over the civil rights claim, which is a statutory right. Is, is that getting well, too arcane? Yeah, I think it is a little too arcane, and I think it's a little too much uh, too pointed on, uh, on it as well. You know, it, what, what I'm saying is that, that you do have these constitutional rights, and these are guaranteed, and these are protected. And it's just like you, you look at any, you know, as, as a lawyer, you look at your levels of what things pass. So, okay, a regulation can be superseded by a law, which can be superseded by the Constitution. I mean, those are, those are things that are in the regulations have to come up underneath the law. The law has to come up underneath the Constitution. The Constitution's your premier document, yeah. uh, and that's why it holds the premier position. I mean, that's just the basics of a constitutional law-based country that you have to conduct it that way, regardless of what the situation is, and kind of regardless of what you really think ought to take place in it. The Constitution supersedes laws and supersedes regulations. I think the, um, the, the religious freedom issue is moving out of issues like the cake baker, uh, and I'm not putting that, that issue down, but you know, baking a cake is, is not of a crucial 
need in terms of getting the cake. As you said, there are other other cake, other bakeries, but it's moving into the medical context, the religious, uh, the freedom of conscience, conscience issue in the medical context. Uh, sometimes um, it's called medical conscience. And you now see an effort um, across a broad array of um, a broader way array of issues to um, force doctors and nurses to participate in medical procedures that they that violate their religion. For example, having to participate or refer for an abortion. If you don't do that, there are those who claim it's discrimination. Having to engage in uh, uh, treating transgender. Uh, transition issues, uh, even how to uh, uh, California apparently attempted to force doctors to participate in assisted suicide, and recently a court uh, protected the religious freedom of doctors who oppose that not to engage in assisted suicide. So I think that those issues were moving out of the issues of uh, you know cake baking, floral arrangements, this kind of thing, into literally issues of whether somebody can be forced to take a human life whether somebody can be forced to uh, engage in medical procedures that in their religious belief violate the distinction between male and female. And, and now it's really getting to the point of, of tremendous seriousness. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're seeing these on a, you know, a almost daily basis come up. Uh, Wesley heard of a, you know, a case in one state uh, where a, uh, a couple with a minor child, uh, they were uh, uh, being charged and uh, told that they're going to the social services in that state were going to take the child away from them because they didn't affirm the child's decision to uh, gender transition. Uh, they wouldn't didn't prevent him, but they weren't affirming it. And they're saying, "Well, this is being you abuse of your abuse of your children, and we're going to take the child away from you in social services." And you're going, "Oh my goodness." This is a minor yeah, child, uh, yeah. and you're taking them away from their parents off of this uh, issue that the that the, the parents aren't preventing, but they're not affirming. Uh, and you're just going, this is really serious, uh, and is something that shouldn't be done. So, yeah, we, this this is just it's flooding into all these various fields, and to me again, that's why we really need a you know a state-by-state religious freedom uh, group, uh, Kansans for Religious Freedom, Pennsylvanians for Religious Freedom, to stand up in those cases in that state as they come up and say, you know, wait a minute, this is a serious set of issues that we're discussing here that have huge ramifications on the individuals and on the culture, uh, and we need to really ponder this, and we need to stand for these constitutional rights uh, for the minority or the majority. So you're planning on, and the organization would do that uh, politically, legally, uh, and, um, uh, and promoting legislation and this kind of thing? Yeah, and politically uh, and educationally. I mean, we hope to conduct educational campaigns about the beauty of religious freedom. Why this is such a beautiful constitutional right and such important constitutional right to a diverse country like our own in particular, uh, but and also political, that we want to get behind candidates who support religious freedom and oppose candidates who do not. And then educationally, uh, as I mentioned earlier, really to talk broadly with the public about why this is an important right. I think often we lose sight of 
why the founders put these sorts of things here and they're, why this is a germane issue, a critically important issue to today. Yeah, and there will be in the program notes a link to the committee if people are interested to, to reach you. Good. Uh, I want to get your, your comments on a recent op-ed in the New York Times. It was entitled, How Extreme Religious Liberty Undermines Public Health. And I think that the author, it's pretty clear, would would say that what you are promoting here is, quote, extreme religious liberty. The author is a uh, person named Lindsay F. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, and it ran in the New York uh, Times on uh, September 17th, or 18th, sorry, September 18th. And here's, here's, a, here's a quick quote from um, what uh, Professor Wiley had to say. Securing the public's health requires Americans to work together toward shared goals. The right of individuals and businesses to opt out of doing their part by asserting a religious objection undermines the entire system. Extreme shifts in longstanding legal doctrines may be designed to target stigmatized groups, people seeking elective abortions, transgender people, and people who are intimate with HIV-positive partners, but the effects will touch everyone. So basically what this author is saying is that when we do the kind of accommodations that you've been advocating, that it is actually uh, very deleterious to the entire society and actually affects the public health. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, this is the tyranny of the majority then that the founders stood against. This is, uh, say, if, if there is a majority of people in the country that support abortion, and there's actually a strong majority in the country that supports some substantial limits on abortion. But let's say that there's a majority in a state that supports abortion, and now you're going to force doctors to perform abortions to maintain uh, their uh, license as a medical doctor. Uh, that, that, is a, that is something that they oppose on religious grounds. They believe this is a killing of a life, and they took a Hippocratic oath. Uh, to to do no harm, uh, I I just I think that's a real dangerous reading of a uh, a majority opinion always rules. Uh, it doesn't. It, the majority has an opinion, but you have that set of constitutional rights that it doesn't matter what the majority says. These are protected rights, uh, and I, I I think this is a, a dangerous thing for. Uh, the, the, an individual to uh, to uh, push for. Do you think that the media, um, speaking the popular media, whether it's uh, cable news, uh, the network news, do you think that they uh, address this question in a way that lets people see what it is that you're describing? Or do you think that they get so focused on the outcomes that they forget the larger points? Well, I mean, that's too generalized to say, you know, whether they're doing it one way or the other. But I, I think too often people in the media in particular, and this happens to everybody, but uh, that they've got an outcome that they want to see happen. And so that they they push for it uh, and they push for it implicitly or explicitly in the stories and the way they present a case. Um, I just I think people, though, in those roles, all of us should pause and to think, you know, wait a minute. Now, what's what's the what's the significant outcome of this long term if I'm if the route I am pursuing happens? I mean, uh, uh, 
do we end up where you have a country that the uh, Orthodox Jews can't live in, or Orthodox Muslims, for that matter, can't live in, uh, because of their practices not being uh, the majority that they're opposed to abortion? Is that something we want? Is that, is that an outcome you want in your advocacy? And I, I think people should really ponder that. Uh, and, you know, and frankly, I think it would be good for all of us just to kind of back up, cool off a little bit, start to make some friendship with people that are of different ideologies and ideas than we are. And, and then just say, sit down over a cup of coffee or whatever it might be and say, I want to talk about this with you. We've kind of lost the ability to talk to each other. Yeah. yeah. And ground zero, I think, is Catholic hospitals. Yes. Uh, you, you have a case in uh, California called Dignity Health. Are you familiar with that case? I'm not familiar with that one. Dignity, Dignity Health uh, is a Catholic hospital in Sacramento, and it was approached for hysterectomy. This is several years ago. And then about two weeks, and they put it on the calendar. And then about two weeks before the surgery, either the patient called or somebody else called and said, well, you know, this is a transition surgery. Uh, and it had nothing to do with, you know, uterine cancer or anything of that kind. And so the hospital, following Catholic moral principles in healthcare, canceled the surgery. Uh, three days later, and they, they, uh, they even helped the uh, patient uh, find a different hospital that would do it. Uh, the reason that Dignity Health refused were two. And these were general principles not aimed at transgendered people, but general principles of Catholic healthcare. The first is that a Catholic hospital cannot take out healthy organs. The only time you can take out an organ in a Catholic context is if there's a pathology. And in this circumstance, there was no pathology with the uterus. The second is that a Catholic hospital cannot sterilize, which is a, a, a fundamental Catholic uh, principle. And unless, again, if there's a, a, a pathology. So if the, if a person approached with a uterine cancer, of course, the Catholic hospital can do it. But if the, if a woman approached saying, I want a hysterectomy so I don't get pregnant, the, the Catholic hospital would have been just as uh, likely to say no, would have said no to that request as the transition. Well, there's a law in California called the Unruh Act that said if you discriminate based on um, sexual identity, that's discrimination and you can be sued. And so the patient sued the hospital, you can imagine. The trial judge said, wait a second, free exercise of religion. But the Court of Appeals of California said, no, general applicability. Remember, we talked about the Smith case. And this case goes to trial and a jury can award damages. And the California Supreme Court agreed and it was brought to the U.S. Supreme Court, which decided not to take the case at this time, apparently because the, the uh, hospital hasn't been required to pay anything yet. But this is going to the jury. And if there's a big jury verdict against Dignity Health, then it seems to me it's Katie bar the door on Catholic health care. And you're going to put Catholic hospitals in a situation where they either have to comply with the more general secular approach to these issues sell their facility, or close their facility. And the people who are going to be hurt are the patients who are helped by those facilities. I agree. 
And that's the tragedy of where we're headed with all of these things like this. Look what's happened to uh, Catholic adoption agencies in uh, some places uh, in, in liberal states. They've been literally shuttered, uh, shut down. An adoption agency that's providing an adoption service that's desperately needed for so many children, particularly hard to place children, uh, that you've got uh, these services shut down because they wouldn't do same-sex adoptions. Uh, or adoptions to same-sex couples. And they're just saying, look, we, there, are, there are five agencies here that will do this, but we will not because of our conviction that um, marriage is between a man and a woman uh, as a Catholic institution. And I, is, is that the route we want to go, where you just shut all these religious institutions down? We're, we're hurt by doing that, not helped by doing that. Yeah, the, it, it's a deep irony that, in my opinion, that the ideology is actually um, deemed more important than the benefit of the people that these heterodox thinking religious institutions are helping. And, mm -hmm. and, and here's another example. In California, uh, there's something called UC Health, which is the University of California hospital system. And uh, as a consequence and part of this Dignity Health uh, um, case, and a lot of political pressure the UC system, which had con which contracts with Catholic hospitals to provide care in areas where UC hospitals don't exist, right? And so they said either these Catholic hospitals start uh, complying with our approach to medical ethics, which is not a Catholic approach, or we're going to terminate the contract. Well, the problem here is that these Catholic hospitals care for a lot of Medicaid patients who can't get to UC systems. So in order to push the ideology and, and prevent, in very few cases, I mean, how many cases does this occur? The request for sterilization yes. or the request for transition in a Catholic hospital, very few. In order to push those agendas, Medicaid patients may find themselves with a right to health care based on their Medicaid, Medi-Cal membership, but no hospital to provide the care because that contract will have been terminated. And we'll find out whether UC Health will go through with that next year. And then the Catholic hospitals will either have to decide we're no longer going to be Catholic or we will accept the termination. And the people who are hurt are the ones who have nothing to do with it, the Medicaid patients. I agree. And it's just a, it's a sad situation that we're moving ourselves to with uh, this sort of uh, pure ideology that has a political edge to it. Uh, confronting this constitutional right, and in some cases, a majority opinion that doesn't agree uh, with uh, a Catholic view, forcing out this great benefit of a service. You know, for uh, I've, I've worked a long time on uh, aid issues and um, trying to get help to people that are in more difficult circumstances uh, around the world and in the United States. And we used to talk just uh, very boldly and uh, affirming wise of all of these uh, platoons of little people, platoons of action of folks that just are out there doing good. And many of them are motivated by their religion. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's them out doing something to help clean the neighborhood up or provide a health care. And now you're going to run all of them out. 
these, these folks that are out here doing so much good and providing this spiritual capital, a number of people would refer to it as a, 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 they're providing social needs because of their spirituality that yeah. benefits us all. And we're going to run it out. So I, I think it's a, a real tragedy. If, and if people, if that's really the drought they want to go, we're going to be much poorer as a nation if this ends up taking place. And it's going to be much more expensive to the government. And you're not going to have these compassionate arms out there helping people because they can't. They're not allowed to. Yeah, and, and when, when the accommodation that you've advocated and that I agree with uh, would allow 98%, we'll say, or 99% where there is no conflict to be cared for. Yes. It, it, it's just an astonishing thing to me that the ideology uh, and seeking to break the back of this, of what is becoming heterodox viewpoints, the Catholic viewpoint, is worth more to these advocates than protecting these patients who need the care. Protecting the patients, protecting the child that needs an adoption. Yep. Um, this uh, really, you're, you're really trying to run out this spiritual capital that's done so much to help people in this country. You're trying to drive it out of the public square. Yeah, and and, and uh, this this is going to get more um, intense and heated, I think, before it gets less. And one of the things and the reasons I wanted you on Humanize and, and how I appreciate your approach is you don't approach it in anger. You approach it in a in a in a plea to uh, a commonality, which I think is really important because too often today, people who are on the side of religious freedom come at it from a very angry viewpoint and a very dogmatic viewpoint, and that can be off-putting too. Yeah. As we're told, it always has to be done in love. And I've been in many of these fights over the years of different types, uh, but we we just always got to do it uh, by our faith, and our faith calls us to love. And this isn't a matter out of anger. Uh, if anything, to me, it's a sadness that we would drive out these public services. Um, but I, I also I don't I don't think you win any arguments uh, moving this forward in anger. Uh, yep. I, I do believe, Wesley, in the longer term, we'll figure out how to do this. I just don't, I don't want to see us getting a lot of damage to children that need to be adopted or poor uh, individuals that need health care uh, before we get there to a longer term accommodation yeah, and, and solution. And, and uh, it's going to take the kind of dedicated engagement that you're advocating with the new organization. It is. And it's going to take, it is an, a dedicated engagement uh, and seeing, and us talking to each other again. We used to do this. I did the first human trafficking bill with Paul Wellstone, who was as liberal, more liberal than I was conservative in the United States Senate, but we both saw a common problem and we could talk to each other. And that's how we got that through to start addressing these issues of human trafficking that, that, are broadly more recognized now, but at the time when we started that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, was hardly even seen. Yeah. We really are better off when we can figure out some way to at least tolerate each other enough to talk about something and then find a way forward. Which is a better way to promote the general welfare than winner take all. Or lawsuits all the time, or just using these issues too often politicizing them instead of trying to find a way to uh, address them. 
Uh, we're running out of time, and uh, you're such an expert uh, on this issue. I just want to have a real quick question on the international scene. Um, uh, when we last spoke, you were very concerned about international religious freedom. Have you seen in the last year improvement, or are we still having uh, difficulties engaging? I think we're still in trouble, and I think it's getting worse. Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party uh, has an ideology that they want to take over the world with. It includes religious persecution. They are the, the, the lead enabler of human rights abuses and religious freedom abuses around the world. Uh, they continue to press these issues forward. And then you've got all these authoritarian regimes that are pushing hard on religious freedom because they are opposed to it. And you're seeing more in Western countries now, uh, this really dogmatism of uh, wanting to um, run a lot of religion and religious beliefs out of the public square. So you have a Finnish parliamentarian who's a physician who posts Bible verses on the internet and gets prosecuted criminally for hate crimes. Uh, and you're just going, this is not a good trend uh, in the Western world or in the authoritarian world, and certainly not a good one from the communist countries. And as you said, if the United States won't lead on these issues, who will? God help us. Yeah, we've got to lead on these issues. We have to be the lead force. And we also, I think, have to recognize the centrality of religious freedom and that, that these are rights upon which you build other rights, uh, and you can push them forward that way. Yeah, that's right. And you made a, a comment in our interview a year ago that stuck with me all this time, that what many Westerners don't understand is that for many societies in this world, religion is the focus. It is. 80% 80, 80 of the world's people organize their life around a set of religious values. They may not be yours or mine, but they organize around a set of religious values. So most people in the world are religious, even if the in the United States uh, or Europe, uh, you know, there's a declining impact on religion in most of the world. It's a growing uh, issue in nature. Yeah, you see, Africa is is actually growing in terms of religion and the strife that is seems to be accommodating that because. There is not that tradition of religious plurality and pluralism um, in Africa. Well, we're out of time, but I want to ask, uh, what next for Sam Brownback? You've been so busy the last year. I assume that the next year you're going to be just as uh, active. Uh, it, I will be. I've uh, got really a lot of things going on in this religious freedom uh, space. Um, you know, I'm also really interested increasingly on uh, having a, a – uh, uh, environmental justice issues for as far as that we would address the environment from a compassionate conservative, uh, from a standpoint that we need to take care of the environment. We need to do so wisely. We need to do so in a just uh, form. And uh, so I've been starting to work with some center-right groups on how to do this using markets, using all of the above, and not penalizing people that are low-income uh, for us to have a clean environment. Uh, we need to be able to do these in such a way that, that low-income individuals are not penalized. So I, I'm, we're starting to work on what that sort of uh, kind of um, 
moral conservatism uh, for the environment uh, would look like. Also, I've worked quite a bit on racial reconciliation. I'm delighted that the Dobbs case uh, passed, uh, but I, I really do want us to work on Native American reconciliation, African American reconciliation with, you know, really looking at it from how to, um, it, how does God look at this? Uh, how, would, how would he want us to reconcile as people? You know he does. Uh, you know he wants us to love each other. How do we get that reconciliation to take place that's done in a loving fashion? We can do these things, Wesley, and I, I think it'll be so important for us as a society and for conservatives to engage these issues from a godly perspective. Well, I look forward to uh, hearing more about some of that work. Uh, proper care for the environment is part of human exceptionalism. It's a duty. Humans have rights, but we also have duties. And and the uh, proper care of the environment is uh, in the second aspect of human exceptionalism. It is our duty to to treat this world in a proper way, and finding the best methods of doing that, of course, is the, <laughs> is the key. But maybe we'll talk about that next time. I would look forward to it. Thank you, Sam Brownback. Thanks very much for being on Humanize. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.